So please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27, as we'll be looking at this chapter today, starting at verse 2 and through the end of the chapter. So Isaiah 27, starting at verse 2. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for self. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would use it to correct us because we are a people who still seek after other gods. We attempt to fashion things after our own likeness. We attempt to make you after our own likeness. And so, Lord, we pray that you would fix us. We are idolaters. And we need truth. Lord, lead us to your truth. Show us Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So several weeks ago, I asked the church to pray for me because of the stress of this time of year, the different things that are going on in our lives as a family, and just the extra stuff that I've taken on myself for this year. And I ask for you specifically to pray for patience for me because I'm not a very patient person. I need to learn how to persevere when things are difficult. Well, God decided to answer your prayer. And he, uh, he did that. Granted, all of the fun things that we've had going on in our family the last few weeks and, you know, washing machines and drain pipes and all the fun things that we've experienced. Uh, these are very minor problems with easy solutions. I'm not saying, woe is me, look at our horrible life, because we actually have it quite good. However, when comfort and ease are your idols, as they are mine, they represent a full-on assault to those things that I held dear. As a result, the last few weeks have been hard. I've been moody, been angry. I thought, surely there's a more spiritual way to teach me something like patience and gentleness. You know, maybe I could just go out and get some nice book, or I could listen to an Alistair Begg sermon, or, or something like that. I didn't want to learn patience the hard way. I wanted to have a sticker that said I took the class and I was already done. Wouldn't that be nice and easy? In our text today, Isaiah is stuck in a similar kind of place. Really, the last week as well. He has this vision of what he sees as the redeemed of the Lord before the Lord and with him. But his reality, the things that are actually going on in his time are much different. He's stuck with the redeemed of the Lord, his own people or the people of the Lord, the ones who are worshiping the Lord. And he's stuck with everyone else. And the people of God aren't acting at all like the people of God. They're spoiled. And they want their washing machine fixed. And they don't want any more staff meetings. They don't want those things. They've gone after other gods because the one true God wants them to behave and worship Him alone. And so they went and they found something else. Our text goes between the two extremes that we have here. The picture of the redeemed, the restored people on the one hand, and the picture of the sinful people that need refinement on the other. We all long for the day when we'll finally be restored and we'll no longer need to be refined and pray for things like patience. 
when we will have that fully. But in this life, we still have to fight for those things. And so as we look at this text, I want to consider those two main ideas. First, the vine restored. And then second, the people refined. And so with that, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from Isaiah chapter 27, starting at verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. He has struck them as he struck those, or has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile you contended with them. He removed them from his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken. Like the wilderness, there the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day... From the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria, those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, for just a bit of review, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. As I want to review an image that we've already looked at, perhaps this image of the vineyard or the vine was familiar to you because back in chapter 5, the Lord used the same sort of image, except for it stands in stark contrast to the one that we looked at today. So let's read the first seven verses of Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved, for my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. O now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So back there in chapter five, which is what Isaiah is dealing with currently, really, it's his present and future reality, really, for Isaiah. Notice what's going on with the vine. The Lord planted it perfectly. He wanted it to do well, but yet it yielded wild grapes. Remember when we were going over that passage, those wild grapes symbolized Isaiah or Israel's idolatry and their corruption. Rather than weed the vineyard, the Lord intended to completely decimate the vineyard, which is what we read there in chapter 5 just now. He removes its protections. He no longer sends the rain. It will bear no fruit. It will be completely overrun by the outside world. That happens. History teaches us that. So does the Bible. In 722, Assyria comes and sacks the northern kingdom. And in 586, Judah is taken over by Babylon. The vineyard is overrun. But in our text today, we see a reversal of this. We have to be careful because this doesn't mean that the Lord has somehow changed his mind. It's not that the Lord changes his mind at all, but that both judgment and redemption are a part of his eternal plan. He always planned to judge sinful man. Always. He's always planned to preserve a remnant for himself. We even saw that in Todd's reading of Isaiah 6 this morning. He secured that remnant by coming himself and doing the work of redemption himself. And much like last week, this passage presents us with the future look and this present look at which what Isaiah is dealing with. He Once again, we have this tension of waiting on the Lord and in the meantime, having to endure the difficulty of the Lord's discipline for his children. And so with that, we'll look first at the first point, the vine restored. So look with me there at verse 2. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. So here you have a song of the vineyard, and the Lord is singing about his own people. He calls them a vineyard. He details how he plans then to care for that vineyard. And notice the contrast between what we just read in chapter 5 and what we see here. It's not that we have a different Lord at all. We have a different people. Those who aren't his have been removed from the vineyard. We talked about that the last few chapters. Those who are his have endured the difficulty and they remain there to sing with the Redeemer this song. Look at verse 3 and again note the contrast. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it. Rather than removing its clouds so that no rain would come, he's watering it every moment. Lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. He's right there guarding it. No longer letting anything 
overrun it. In fact, I love verse 4. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. He wishes there were enemies, the Lord does, so that he could protect this thing that he loves. I think we all kind of understand this feeling of protecting a thing that you love and cherish. It's a very satisfying kind of feeling. The Lord almost longs to do that. But notice what else he says in verse 4. I have no wrath. And this doesn't mean that the Lord's character has changed again, because we know that the Lord cannot change. This means that his wrath has been expended onto something. This means that he has spent his wrath. We should immediately call, it should immediately cause us to ask questions. Because those people that are there, were they not sinful? Did they not deserve the wrath of God? They should have been amongst others who were also taken out because of the wrath of God. We know from both Old and New Testament that who are sinners? Yes, all of them. All of them deserve the wrath. Then why are there still people here singing with their Redeemer and the Redeemer saying, I have no wrath? We know why. It would have been a complete lapse of character for the Lord not to judge sin. And he did that. He did judge sin. This points right to the cross. When the Son of God came to earth, he came that we might be able to read here, I have no wrath. The Father emptied his wrath out upon the Son to the last drop until there was no more wrath to give for his people. Now, he will later pour out his wrath, or he had just poured out his wrath upon some people. Who were they? They were not his. But concerning his own people, who did he pour out his wrath upon? His only son. He emptied his wrath. For the children of God, the death of Jesus Christ represents the wrath of God going from 100 to 0 and staying at 0 forevermore. I think this is an important thing that is missed in many gospel presentations today. It's the idea that you are owed wrath. And it is because of your sin. And someone who did not deserve wrath took it for you. He did not deserve wrath because he did not have sin, ever. We like to talk about Jesus, but we don't like to talk about our sin. In fact, our sin is often covered up by the church's new favorite verse, judge not. We want all the benefits of Jesus without the reality that we were once a vineyard doomed For destruction. We're owed everything that we read about in chapter 5. Every bit of it. Yet Jesus took it all. The only one that never once separated from the Father. That never once walked away. Took it all as if he had. Imagine the Son of God. Who back in Genesis said, and the stars. 
The stars were kind of an afterthought. And he flung them out into existence, all billions of them. That one, he allowed mere creatures to kill him, to torture him. And he did it because I like to worship other gods. Because I'll look at the world sometimes and I think, that's really nice. I'll take that. So when we read here, I have no wrath... We aren't reading that he decided to not be angry anymore. He was angry with me and now he's not because he decided he shouldn't be angry with me anymore. He spent all of his anger that he had toward me already and there's no more to spend. For the believer, for you and I, he spent it on Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here. We aren't here to talk about how nice a person you can be. We're not doing that. We're here to worship the Redeemer. Because He, because of Him, we who were once dead in our trespasses are now alive in Jesus Christ. But I want you to hear this for the unbeliever that's here this morning. He will one day spend all of His wrath on you. And it's an eternal spending. He will never be able to say, yep, I'm done with that. He's going to do it for all eternity. And if that's you and you hear His voice right now, repent, turn to Him, receive forgiveness, so that one day He'll look at you and say, I have no wrath. And verse 6 gives us another promise. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with its fruit. It's another great promise rooted in the Old Testament, made complete in Christ, that Israel, from Israel, the whole world will be blessed. You've heard me quote that a bunch, the promise made to Abram, that through him and through his seed, the whole world would be blessed through him. That is about Jesus Christ, rather than the world encroaching upon the people of God, the people of God will encroach upon the world. Filling the whole world with fruit isn't some sort of military crusade, but it's providing blessing and nourishment for the whole world. We should all know that quote about Abram by now, Genesis chapter 12. And we have this promise here again. We have it all throughout the New Testament as well. What did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That means the church is going out into the world. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that He commands. We are bringing the vineyard to the desolate world. And it will not prevail. Ultimately, the kingdom of God does prevail. Ultimately, however, in this life, we see glimpses of that only glimpses because most of what we see is difficulty. We talked about Psalm 73 last week was a very personal look at that tension. Psalm 74 that we recited together is a more broad approach or broad look at that same tension. We see that very same thing here in verses seven through 13 today. That brings me to the second point of people refined. Verse 7, he says, 
Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? It's a rhetorical question. He's switching back to his present day now. He's back in his own present reality. Things aren't as they should be, and these verses show that. Though the Lord hasn't dealt with Israel quite like he has dealt with the other nations of the world, because they are his own, and you see this idea here in verse 7, he hasn't really dealt with us the way that he dealt with the other nations. He has removed the enemy, but he has a plan for his own people. Verse 9. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No ashram or incense altars will remain standing. He plans to deal with their sin. And yes, this is pointing right to Jesus. Absolutely, ultimately. But it's also pointing to a very near thing to the people of God, and that is the destruction of our idols. He plans to refine his people by crushing their idols, by showing them no favor in the immediate future. This is for the people that Isaiah is dealing with. Verse 11 shows this. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women, come make a fire of them. For this people without discernment, therefore he made them, therefore he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will not show them favor. History teaches us this as well. We just talked about they were, they were overtaken. Both kingdoms are routed. Only two of the original tribes remain. Original twelve tribes remain. This is hard. This is a hard teaching for us in this Christian life, and we want to relegate this and say, oh, that's all Old Testament. But we're seeing every week that the Old Testament is really about today. It's really about Jesus. It applies definitely to us. And so this idea of crushing of our idols very much is a thing for today. We want the Christian life to be picnics at the park, matching khakis and white shirts, picture-perfect because isn't that what God wants for us? Isn't that what He wants? In fact, me and God are going to work together to somehow make it happen. We're going to be a team. I'm going to have the faith. He's going to listen to me. The devil can't stand against us if we work as a team, side by side, me and God doing this. We'd love it if that were the truth. Because then we'd only need to fake our way through the whole thing. We might even be able to convince ourselves that it's true. That's not how it works. This life isn't perfect. God doesn't listen to us because He's actually wise. Sometimes what's best for us is a whole lot of hard stuff because He wants our idols crushed into chalk dust. He wants our bows to be broken. And why is that? Because he wants us to run to him. He wants us to rest in him. There's nothing else that we should be resting in than him. And if you think that God is waiting on us to define what it is that's good for us so that we can then ask him for those things, 
you need to go back to Genesis 1, chapter 1. Start reading again. He is the only wise God. We are his creatures. He gave us simple instructions. And we couldn't even follow those. And we've been living with the consequences ever since. Yet, what did he do? He set aside a people for himself. And it's that people that he plans to refine and to mold and to make holy. This process of becoming holy or being sanctified is the word that we use in the church. Isn't an easy one. There are some difficulties there. And those difficulties, brothers and sisters, are placed there by the Lord for us. Not some adversary that the Lord can't control that he needs us to team up with in order to make it better. That's not how this works. To be sure, we do have an adversary. It's true. And he is out for our destruction. That adversary hates us. But he's merely a creature as well. His days are numbered also. He knows it. While he means evil, God means those things for good. Notice in verses 12 and 13, he plans to gather us up. In that day from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain of Jerusalem. I love verse 12. One by one, you'll be gleaned. He's going to separate us from the chaff one by one. John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40, I'll read. And this is the will of him who sent me, this is our Lord Jesus talking, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Every one of those who are his, he plans to be with them right there as we're reading today on that last day. When we look at this life and anything in this life and think that God can't possibly mean these things good for good for me, we have to picture him right there on that last day gathering us up so that none is lost. That's the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters. That we'll be with him forever in that eternal city. The work that he has started will finally be complete. And so in conclusion, let us remember the end as we live this life. The end in mind, keeping it in mind. Knowing that God keeps his promises in Jesus Christ. He intends to bring us home one day. He intends to complete us. And let us not be shy about bringing that message to the world. The gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we hear from your word, it is very simple to see where we stand. We, st- we don't stand at all. We kneel at your feet. 
We can't even imagine that you would look upon us, much less come and die for us. But that's what you did. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us because we intend to serve you on this earth. We do really want more holiness in our lives. We know that it's hard. And we know that it's going to be a struggle. But, Lord, we want it. And, Lord, may it not be our goal to be holy so that we might look more holy, but so that you may be glorified more and more. And so that the world would know that you are the Savior of your people. We pray this in your name. Amen.